IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we discuss our favorite albums of 2023. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, he's my number three emo album of the year, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Uh, I'm glad you've got your favorite emo list going because I, you know, if my our editor Phil uh, always says like, yeah, I always get update statuses from listening to IndieCast about your articles, and I've I'm still shaping my uh, emo album list, but man, it's just really fucking tough to do this year, and I think we're gonna talk about my particular difficulties with list making of any sort in 2023. But um, yeah, I'm trying to think what's behind uh, Awake But Still in Bed and Home Is Where. Like the three spot is uh, very open right now. See, I like that you communicate with Phil via podcast. <laughs> you know, none, we don't need Slack. We don't need email. You just record a podcast and that's how you communicate with your editor. I think that, that's a great way to go. Um, my list just went up, uh, and when I say just went up, I'm talking about Thursday morning as we record this. Um, I said this last week, I had a great time making my list this year. I, I got a little creative with it. It's a top 25 list, but I wrote about 51 albums on my list, and that's because I have various sub-lists on my <laughs> list, uh, some of which are IndieCast-inspired, like I did a albums that I like the idea of more than the actual albums list. And of course, well, I won't say who topped the list. I think we probably can guess who topped that list. Um, And then I did more serious sub lists on there as well. But I had a great time making the list. Uh, I'm curious, like for you at this point, do you still read lists? Because I can say for myself, like I don't read much music writing in general at this point. Uh, I feel like I've read my fill of music writing in my life already. <laughs> I think I, ex- I think I, you know, exhausted my lifetime supply by the time I was like 35, 36. Um, Cause you get to a certain age and you realize that the thoughts that people feel like are original in their twenties <laughs> have actually been recycled many times. Like thoughts I thought were original in my twenties. I'm now seeing writers in their twenties, write. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I was just doing my version of what people were writing in the 90s, like when I was writing in the aughts. It's the circle of life. And you just realize there's only so many cliches that you can go through. There's exceptions. I mean, there's writers who transcend that kind of thing. But by and large, you you feel like you've read like the 12 different record reviews <laughs> that exist, right? Am I wrong? Yeah. Like, do you feel? I feel like that's that's true. No, that's, so a- I don't read- that's absolutely true. Um, yeah, so I have, I don't really read a lot of, of it anymore. I don't really care what's on other people's lists. I'm not invested. I don't get upset if something is left off of someone else's list uh, like I might have 10 years ago. Um, do you find yourself still invested in that kind of thing? Because, again, I, lo- I, I loved making my own list. I care about my own list, but I don't really care about other people's lists. Uh And maybe I'm just self-absorbed. I don't know. But uh, are you engaged with list season? Like, are you reading a lot of lists? Are you keeping tabs on what albums are doing well and which ones aren't? I mean, in a lot of ways, 
indie cast is my way of like processing grief about how much I used to care about these lists. <laughs> like, I mean, nowadays, like uh, Pitchfork's list uh, publishes, I think at like six or seven, and it publishes on the morning. Whereas like 2011, 2012, I think it used to post like everything else at like midnight. And like, it was like Christmas for me. Like, even though I was like making part, like making the list and so forth, like back in those days, like all list season was, maybe it was more like Hanukkah in the sense that like, you know, there were a couple of big gifts, but you get sprinkled a couple of little neat knickknacks and treats throughout the week. And, um, but you know, as I get older, uh, Hanukkah eventually just morphed into, okay, here's your one big gift. And then eventually it's, you know, your parents just give you a check, uh, get whatever the fuck you want. Um, and you know, nowadays, like I don't feel the same sense of ceremony. Like it just feels like an exhale when list season happens rather than, um, you know, like a culmination, like there's the, the surprise, the spark, it just seems to have left. And, which is really strange because I've been less engaged with the narrative than I had in any previous year and like listening to less music just because I have less time for it. And yet when year-end list season comes, it still feels as anticlimactic, if not more so, than it has in the past because, you know, I just feel like we're so engaged, like not we're immersed in it, but not really engaged of it. And so... You know, I'm not surprised by anything that comes out. Like, I think all publications are basically dearing in the same, uh, I'm going to use a cooking term, mirepoix. You know, the basic, uh, (laughs) like the roux, if you will, of like Boy Genius, Lana, Olivia Rodrigo. And each publication gives you its, you know, they throw their own spice in there. And that's where the discovery happens. Like, that's the part that is important to me because, like, I really need year-end lists these days. I'm like, what did I miss? Like, what's actually good? What is worth my time? Um, And so, like, hopefully I'll get, I don't know, five albums that we can talk about when we do our Indie Cassie's mid-year and the 2024. It's like, what 2023 albums really hit for you? So... Yeah, I mean, I think it's about individual lists for me at this point. Absolutely. I think the, the big publication, you know, like we're we're just getting a bunch of input from a bunch of people. Uh, that those lists are less interesting than just if there's individual people who I I like their perspective or I'm aligned with their taste. I definitely want to see uh, what they're talking about for the reasons that you just said. You know, if you miss certain albums, uh, it's good to catch up with them that way. You know, my, my interest in year-end lists at this point, because I'm not really reading them, but I do skim them. Yeah. I'm interested in, like, the stock year-end list albums that you haven't heard of at all throughout the year, and then they end up on these lists, and then not a word is spoken of them again. You know, like, <laughs> it's like these publications could be making up these albums, for all I know. Like, they may not actually exist. But I wouldn't know. I'm just taking their word for it. Like, my two favorite sort of stock year-end list albums, and these aren't the albums that top the list, but they're the ones that, like, are in the middle between, like, 20 and 35. The first one is, like, the arty and obscure rap record with, like, an unpronounceable name. (laughs) That's one. And the other one is, like, the near-unlistenable death metal album. (laughs) Maybe that's the like, one, that one might have the unpronounceable name too. Like those, yeah, they, that's they, true. They, they do share commonalities. It's like you look at these lists, and there's always like 
two or three of those kinds of albums where you're like, where did this album come from? Like, wh- why was this the album of this type of album, the one that bubbled <laughs> up? You know, and look, I'm not knocking these records. I'm sure they're they're fine, but it just seems like that type of record is going to end up on a year-end list as opposed to like a really good, maybe like down-the-line indie rock record, you know, which is anathema now, I feel like, to a lot of year-end lists. Like, just, like you're just a solid indie rock band. You made like a really good record. You're not going to attract critics who want to put you on a list. But if you're like an obscure rapper who has like, you know, a couple parentheses in their name and like weird capitalization and lowercase combinations, or you're like a death metal band from Florida that maybe has some weird progressive angle to your music, something like that, you're going to end up on one of these lists. Like you got a good shot. Yeah. We can also include like the ambient album that somehow arises from the Merc. Like I'm fascinated by those because like in the same way I'm fascinated by any sort of like deep subgenre. Like um, I've sometimes like, you know, compared ambient music of that sort to like hockey in that I can't really tell like quite who's good, but if like I can recognize the names, you know, it's like, ah, I, I've seen that guy talked about, like, I, I know they're good, but like, if I did just like a blind watch or a blind listen, yeah, I probably wouldn't be able to tell. But those 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 typically come up at like number forty four. They feel more yeah. forty four than twenty to thirty feels like the more uh, like fifth album of a legacy artist. Like that's hey, true. Yeah, that's like where I find you know your Eve's tumors popping up in uh in uh twenty twenty three. But yeah, I love those I love those because there's like gotta be like two or three like extreme music people in each publication and like that's their number one. Right. Uh, so I gotta respect that. And like the death metal guy is also gonna be the one who writes about the jazz record that has some kind of <laughs> yeah. mainstream crossover. <laughs> and like when you have the list, like that's gonna be at number 40 or it's going to be like the first album you see so like when you read the list you're like oh wow they there's some eclectic taste here (laughs) they're writing about a jazz record yeah oh my god and it's like maybe the only jazz record on the list like the jazz record that like maybe involves a member of tortoise uh or (laughs) is like a jazz guy and like an electronic guy making a record together you know that might get you into a year-end list and look we're kidding here. I've I've put some of these records on my list. So I'm not, you know, pointing and laughing at other people. I'm including myself in this as well. Uh, just the uh, the grist, uh, yeah. the fodder for year-end lists. I mean, these are the kinds of records that just end up on the list. Uh, and, they, and I feel like they disappear immediately after this season is done. You know, yeah. like no one remembers any of those albums. Like, like, like by January 10th. They're already memory hold. You know, like we've already forgotten about all those records that are just popping up on all these year-end lists. Yeah, I'm looking at my December, like uh, I make a, you know, uh, an hour-long mix for myself every month. And I'm looking at December 2022. And the exact album you're talking about is the Sam Precop and John McIntyre's Sons of record from last year. Uh, That one with the cats on the laundry, laundry machine. I listen to that all the time in December. And like once the calendar turned, I had forgot about it completely. Great record, but also Don Richard and Spencer Zahn. Dan, yeah, oh my God, there are so many of those ambient. 
every December, my this mix I make for myself is filled with like ambient music and like seven minute electronic songs because that's the stuff I'm catching up on in in uh, at the end of the year. It's like that stuff can fly under the radar because. I don't know, maybe it's like not, you know, album of the week at Stereo Gum or best new music, but like, oh, they're ready to pop up uh, at number 43 come December. Say like in the future, I'm just envisioning a box set like Nuggets, you know, like how Nuggets <laughs> was a box set that collected like garage rock yes. bands from the 60s that people forgot, but it's like, oh, these are really cool songs. In 30 years, someone's going to have like a Nuggets like box set, but it's just going to be for like death metal and jazz albums that were on year-end lists in the 2010s and 20s that were immediately forgotten about. We'll just do a compilation of all those albums yeah. and people can revive them in the future. Yeah. Uh, I think that'd be a good project for like... Uh, Compact get, like, pop Amer- ambient. That thing actually exists though, for uh, at least for electronic and ambient music. Let's get Numero, Numero Group. Yes. We'll get you guys on. Just pencil that in for like uh, you know 2043. Yeah, stop reissuing uh, obscure emo bands from 1998. We're gonna get we get into the real stuff. You've exhausted that uh, demographic. Yeah, we're gonna do we're gonna do critical favorites of the 2010s and 20s. Um, can we do a, a quick sports cast here? Sure. Uh, but I know we got the people are excited about our albums of the year, but I, I gotta do a quick sports cast here because I feel like. You know, we had a college football discussion earlier this year, I think in September or so. And I was taking some shots at college football. I think I said that it was just running backs running into the line of scrimmage for 60 minutes. Something to that effect. And I feel like we have to revisit this because I have been big into college football lately, Ian. Ever since the Ohio State-Michigan game, I've been hooked and I've watched enough college football, which isn't that much, but I'm engaged enough that I actually have a, an, an opinion about the college football playoff. Like, there's been so much discourse about that this week. I, I listen to mostly sports podcasts during the week. When I'm going on my walk, I listen to sports podcasts. People complaining about Florida State not getting in. For those who don't know, the college football playoff, there's four teams that make it. And there's a committee that decides who gets in. And uh, they picked Michigan, number one. Then they picked uh, Washington. Those teams were both undefeated. They picked Alabama, who beat your Georgia Bulldogs this weekend. I'm sorry about yeah. that. And then they put, uh, well, actually, they put Texas in at number three because they beat Alabama. And then Alabama's at number four. FSU was undefeated. They didn't get in. Um, again, I'm very uninformed as a college football fan, but I still have an opinion on this. I love this selection. Like I know enough. I know enough about Florida State that like they lost their quarterback. Yeah, they lost like ago. two of them. So they're like really boring at this point. They can't score really any points. Meanwhile, you have Michigan and Alabama, two massive asshole coaches going head to head on January first. I can't wait to watch that. Um, am I just falling victim to the beauty pageant? mentality in college football here ian do you have an opinion on this do you feel like georgia should have made it i mean you guys won what like 29 in a row or something or 27 in a row how how many games in a row was it It was 29 games in a row but the important thing is that only one of them was against alabama i can assure you there was not a single georgia fan at least once i know who was fully confident going into that game 
it's just that Alabama is a team that has their number. But that being said, that made the 2020 championship so, so much more cathartic. It was similar to like how when the Eagles won the Super Bowl, it meant a lot more. They beat the Patriots rather than the Jaguars. Uh, who the Patriots beat in the AFC Championship. But look, I, is Georgia one of the four best teams in college football? Probably. Did they have just like shitty timing uh, with that loss? Absolutely. But I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that this is the part of college football that intrigues you because, you know, I, I remember the first time around, um, you know, I described it as being kind of more like indie rock in the sense that it's like more regional it's emotional, it's scrappy, like it's not always interested in pure wins and losses of success in the way pop is, but there's also an element of professional wrestling to it, or as you described it, beauty <laughs> pageant, where it's like theatrical and totally corrupt. Uh, maybe that's sort of like, I guess, like Premier League soccer. And um, yeah, I think those two things make it very uh, unique. It makes it different than the NFL. Unfortunately, what we're seeing now is that I think they're going to expand the playoffs and go to like a two conference super league. And, um, but, you know, I think that like, yeah, you can see college football at its best by watching Michigan State and Ohio State. But I think that there are so many more interesting things happening below the radar, like Thanksgiving weekend. No one should give a shit outside of the state of Mississippi about, like, the Egg Bowl. But, like, in a way that, like, you cannot replicate when the Lions play the Bears or even when, I'm going to say, the Packers playing the Vikings. Like, the fan bases of those two teams fucking hate each other in a way that is so very real that one of these teams could go 5-7, and seven, but as long as they beat the other team, that was a good year. The NFL has no equivalent to that. Like, right. I've been in years where, like, the Eagles were, like, shitty and maybe they'll beat the Cowboys uh, in one important game. But I don't remember that. Like, I remember the one year that Virginia beat Virginia Tech in the past 20. (laughs) See, I love the indie rock analogy because, you know, I'm getting into, you know, the Ohio State-Michigan game. That's, like, the national of college football. (laughs) Whereas you're you're busting out the obscure matchups here. You're like, no, you should be listening to, uh, you know, I don't know, name... (laughs) I don't. Know, I don't know who the indie rock equivalent of that. The Egg Bowl. Uh, I don't know. I would say that's probably. I'm gonna say more like uh, that. That would be like equivalent to like some of your more like patio bands. I would say. Yeah, maybe that's like uh, you the, know a, dr- a slightly drunker patio rock band. They're a little more like uh, they're more a little more chugly than uh, Virginia Virginia Tech. The Egg Bowl is Bonnie Dune. Okay, we'll say Good they're call. Bonnie Dune. Um, I mean, the one thing, or one of the things I don't like about college football is how padded the records are, like how you have these big-time programs that are playing, you know, East Wyoming University yeah. in September, and that's how they get their undefeated records. That's why, like, this Florida State discourse about how, well, they're undefeated, so they should be in. Like, I don't buy into that at all, because a lot of these records, I just feel like half the games are just write-in victories, you know, whereas... Alabama, you know, yeah, they lost to Texas early in the year, but they played Texas. Yeah, you know, but they early also, on. yeah, but they also played like a lot. They played like Southern Florida, um, and well, know, of course, yeah. they, they're all padded. They're all they're all gaming the system. So I don't like that. Yeah, part of it, but but you know, if you start watching in November, right? I feel like college football is. I've been having a good time, so yeah. I just I just felt obligated in a public forum to to tell you that I'm. Getting into college football, I, f- I felt like that was an important thing for me to say after my dismissive comments 
on the sport a few months ago. So I will say though that without like it might there yes, of course they're the games like, you know, Florida State playing Northern Alabama, but Alabama almost lost to Arkansas. They almost lost to Auburn. And like those are the random games that to me make college football interesting. Like out of nowhere you'll see just like one of those garbage teams in a conference game beat uh Alabama or beat Texas and it just makes absolutely no sense and that's way more exciting than like say if the Patriots were to somehow beat the Dolphins. Well, and Alabama had that ridiculous 4th and 31 yeah. play the, against the, Auburn. The 4th and 26 which, of college football, man. Yeah, well, thank you for bringing that up. Uh <laughs> In most cases in the pros, you would never be able to do that. No. So just like the shitty defense in college sometimes results in these incredible plays. So anyway, I'm into it. That's the end of SportsCast. So, okay. I know we're all excited to get to our albums here. I'm excited too. But I feel like, okay, we got to talk about Taylor Swift here quickly. And this is not indie rock. I'm sorry. We have SportsCast. We have indie rock. We're going to give you a lot of indie rock here in a few minutes. But um, Taylor Swift was named Person of the Year by Time Magazine this week and i think it's deserved she clearly has dominated the news cycle in every way shape and form this year i so the the actual honor i think is is uh deserved did you read the article why uh, that went with this it's like the first interview she's done in a long time and i mean the interview is one thing you know just what her quotes which just confirm, I, I saw someone tweet this, and I have to agree that she is like the most uncool superstar, <laughs> maybe of all time in music. <laughs> like, you know, like you compare her to like Madonna or Prince or Michael Jack, you know, like the, the biggest of the big stars. She's so uncool compared <laughs> to them. But like the writing in this story, um, I just feel like it's so indicative of how the media is in the tank for Taylor Swift to an unprecedented degree. Like, I have a book coming out next year, and I'm sorry to plug this, but I have a book next year about uh, Bruce Springsteen and Born in the USA. And one of the things I write about in that book is that there was a backlash against Bruce Springsteen uh, after that album was so successful. Uh, Because not only was that album a big success, but... The way he was written about, he was written about almost like he was a political figure. Like people were so worshipful of Bruce Springsteen in the press Mm. that you started to see in 1985, the year after the album came out, you started to see people reacting against that. There was a famous article um, called The Hagiography of Bruce Springsteen. Uh, And uh, it it was a GQ article and it just ripped Bruce Springsteen and also just ripped the way people talked about him in a way that like I don't agree with necessarily because I love Bruce Springsteen but I could see why that felt cathartic in 1985 after Bruce Springsteen just being shoved down people's throats like Jordan Belfort in The Wolf of Wall Street selling Steve Madden stock we're gonna (laughs) shove it down your throats until you choke and that's where we're at with Taylor Swift but there's no pushback at all in the media. There's a there's a there's a moment in that interview where the writer is talking about Taylor Swift and how she has framed her own narrative in terms of the backlash that she suffered in uh, 2017 around that time, uh, around the time of Reputation. People were taking her to task because of the Kanye West stuff, and 
some people blamed her for not endorsing Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election, which, for the record, I thought was stupid at the time, and I think it's stupid now. But the way she framed that in this interview, she talks about how she was almost canceled, or she felt like that she was canceled. Even though that album sold over a million copies in its first week, and she did a big stadium tour behind it. I mean, she definitely faced a lot of criticism at the time. But to say that she was canceled, it's sort of like every celebrity or most celebrities that say that they're canceled. It just comes across as you're a narcissist. You're you're in your own world. Like, you don't have perspective on your own life. And the writer, he makes note of this. And he says, you know, I could push back on this. But <laughs> because she believes she was canceled, I think it's valid. Basically saying, as a journalist, I'm not going to push back against this. I'm going to roll over. And let Taylor Swift dictate not only, you know, how she's perceived, but how she's perceived in this article. Like, at the end of the article, he actually says, I feel like Taylor Swift wrote this article herself. Mm-hmm. And there's no irony in that. <laughs> he's not saying it, like, in a critical way. He's saying it in a, wow, she's so amazing kind of way. Um, yeah, I re- like, I experienced this article through screenshots throughout most of the day. Because uh, I was at work, um, and most of my coworkers just absolutely worship Taylor Swift in a way that is, you know, kind of endearing. But like, I think that like what stood out to me after having read the article is um, the confluence of like how Taylor Swift has become this godlike figure in the same time that like therapy and like therapists have also become more of a godlike figure and that like when you read what Taylor Swift is saying about herself it just seems so patently absurd but we've learned to consider that people's subjective reality like might really be their reality and it's tough to push back on that and invalidate it like that is her experience and like it was just so strange to actually see what this person talks like um it, you know, it, it feels like I, I can't. It's so it's like uncanny, um, and you have to wonder like whether it's a someone who's just extremely well coached and kind of a cynical mastermind of generating pull quotes like the goth punk line about reputation. I mean, that's like a form of genius, or if there's well, someone who's the, just completely lost their ability to communicate in an. Well, there was a quote way. in there. There was a quote in there where she said she talks about Travis Kelsey, right? And how they started dating, it's something like, Travis put me on blast on his podcast, which was so metal of him. And I'm like, do you know what any of those words mean? Like, on blast on a podcast? and that, like, How is it metal to talk about Taylor Swift it's on a podcast? That seems like the least, that's like the least metal thing <laughs> I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Uh, but she said it, so we can't question it. What, you know, if she believes it's metal, then I guess it's metal. You know, that's the new journalism with taylor swift yeah if she believes it it's true yeah and uh yeah i just like imagine like dating a a rumor to date maddie healy and also like a guy who catches passes in the nfl who are like very well known for just having like this weird relationship with the english language and your interview seems way more alien I don't know what it could take right now for her to like actually i mean she did not release an album of new material this year like can you right. like that 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 is a possibility for next year. So uh you know, we are yeah. all like what's it going to take for us to like move on from this? Like 
could she withstand a I stand with Israel post? I mean, it's fascinating <laughs> to consider right now. <laughs> I mean, I my only question for Taylor Swift fans is like, are we good now? Like, like is it is it enough now? I I I think about my favorite artists of all time and the ones I'd listen to all the time, and I I feel like I, I could never get sick of. But like, if that person was as famous as Taylor Swift, like I feel like I would start to get sick of her at some point, even if I loved her music. Because it's just everywhere. I, I I just feel like, again, it's the Jordan Belfort shoving Steve Madden's stock down your throat. Even if you love the taste of Steve Madden's stock, I feel like at some point you're going to start choking on it. So I don't, I don't know when that arrives, though. Yeah. You know, like the women in your <coughs> office or the people in your office, they're, they're not there yet. They're the barometers that we're going to use for America. Oh, absolutely. They, they, know, they, 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 they are way more... Yet. They are way more uh, indicative of uh, where our culture is at than us, and yeah, yeah. I'm glad you. I'm glad you're there. I'm glad you're there just for the podcast. Uh, exactly. You know, it, it, it's a great resource for us. Okay, enough Taylor Swift. Right. Let's get to our uh, best albums of 2023. So um, before we get into it, you said something interesting earlier about how you haven't felt very engaged with new music this year, which makes me very curious to hear what your top five is here but i mean my sense is that this was a really good year and i I said this last week i don't think that there was like a dominant masterpiece this year and i think some of these lists are bearing that out because you're seeing scissors record Mm -hmm. topping a lot of lists and that didn't even come out this year it came out at the end of 2022 uh and even if you want to say like year of impact that's still like very early in the year it's not typical that like the album that tops a lot of lists comes out that early mm-hmm. uh very weather so post pavilion comes to mind right exactly that's a good example uh but it's rare i think mm-hmm. and um it just tells me that there wasn't like a dominant record but there were a lot of doubles and triples and i feel like that's true of my list and i kind of like those years i like the doubles and triples years in a way i feel like those records age better because they don't have as much baggage attached to them sometimes albums get written about so much that you it can't help but affect how you hear it um but i don't feel like there were a lot of records like that this year uh so i i don't know i really like this year i think that this was like maybe my favorite year of this decade so far yeah i think that it's been a, i think since fetch the bolt cutters there hasn't been a straight up like uh you know, hit like hit it out of the park, stand and watch it for like five seconds, like Bryce Parker. So it does make for a more interesting conversation. But that being said, uh, there is like this package deal of five albums that's going to be at the top. So it, it's, it's, yeah. So, but yeah, let's, let, let's get into it, you know? And well, I, and I'll go first because right. I feel like my number five is maybe in that package. Okay. Although maybe not. I don't know. Like, my top five, I, I mean, I love my list. I feel like my top five is a little chalkier than the rest of my list. I like to think that I have a lot of albums on my greater list that haven't popped up in a lot of places. But my number five record is 100 Gex, 10,000 Gex. Like, would you say that's in the in that bucket of five? It's in the ten. I, was, I, was, I thought this was going to be your number one. No, it's my number five. I love this record. I think it was my number one mid-year yes. record. Um, so I guess it's fallen a little bit, um, but I love it, you know, and it's a record that, and I wrote about this in my blurb, I think 
because of the business we've chosen as music critics, <laughs> you want to you want to intellectualize this record. I think there's an instinct to try to explain like a deeper meaning behind what appears to be just like a very stupid fun record. But I'm going to resist that instinct. I I really think that the superficial appeal of this record is the appeal of it. You put it on. It's really fun. It makes you feel good. Um, it is the most sort of immediately satisfying and visceral record, I think, that I heard in 2023. So uh, I don't know if this ended up on your... We haven't seen each other's list, so no. I don't know what's on your list. Um, but yeah, this record's so fun. And I've seen it on a lot of lists. But I don't know. It it, it still isn't sullied by that critical favorite status for me. It's 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 such a fun record. It's my number five of the year. Yeah, 100 Gex definitely made my year-end list. Maybe not top five, but it's definitely up there. Um, it's an album that gives me whatever. It gives me the exact thing it promises. And you, many people have over-intellectualized it. But at the end of the day, it's just like a really fun, energetic record that I can throw on for 30 minutes and it'll make my day. Um, for my number five, uh, it's... And it's in a way similar to 100 Gex in the sense that it brings a lot of like quote unquote junk culture. Uh, it does not do so for 30 minutes at a time. Uh, this is kind of a cop out to say uh, DJ, DJ Sabrina, the teenage DJ's destiny is my number five. Now we've talked about this on previous episode. It's four hours long uh, and it's very consistent. Um, and I've, I'll never listen to this in one sitting. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've even finished it in the span of one day, even when I'm like, do like listening to it while I do everything. Um, but the reason it's here is that it reminds me of records like, you know, Avalanches Since I Left You or DJ Shadow or the first couple Girl Talk records where anytime I hear those, I think, you know, these albums are too pure. They're too good for this earth. There's no way we could get something like this in 2023, you know, with all music being available and just being so, um, just so immune to that thrill. And, uh, and yeah, every time I press play on Honey, if you're going to listen to one song from this, it's the eight minute uh, intro. Um, Every time I listen to it, I'm just in a better mood. I can probably throw it on shuffle and get the same effect. Like this is going to be the most, um, you know, it's the most giving and generous album for me. Like I do wonder if it in the future this will be held up as like some sort of, I don't know, not maybe not masterpiece, but uh, an important album. I do really yeah. wonder or or whether like whether their next one's just going to be like a 45 minute banger or like whether they're just going to keep going and going and going and doing like eight, eight hours. But um, yeah, this one, have I listened to it the fifth most times of any album uh, I listened to in 23, 23? Absolutely not. But um, I, I just love it. I love it conceptually and I love the execution. And uh, if you haven't heard it yet, give it, give it 30 minutes of your time. See how you feel. See. See, I didn't put this on my master list, but I, you know, I mentioned the sub lists on my list and the li- the sub list of I like the idea of this album more than the album. Like this was my number two album <laughs> on that list, and that's not a knock on the album because I like it for all the reasons that you said. It's just the fact that it's four hours long, and I've never listened to it in its entirety. I listened to it for about maybe forty or forty five minutes at a time, and for those forty to forty five minutes, it sounds great. It's just that you'd have to spend an entire work week <laughs> to get through it. 
I do think that the next album that they make, if it is that 45-minute album, if it's like their discovery, you know, Daft Punk, mm-hmm. if if they manage to do that, I think that's going to be a world-beating record. This feels like a laboratory where they're working and they're just trying out so many different ideas and the heads are going to love this record, but I think if they can distill it into a more digestible package... Uh, it's going to be a really fun record. But yeah, I mean, look, this is just super fun dance music that takes you back to, you know, the heights of, you know, 80s pop, disco, that whole thing. It's like candy. It's a very enjoyable listen for about 40 to 45 minutes at a time. So I like that choice. Uh, My number four pick is Mitski. The land is inhospitable and so are we. And Mitski's in an interesting place right now because... um, She's undeniably one of the biggest stars in indie, but she's taken approach to her public-facing persona that in a lot of ways feels old-fashioned. Like, she is not a person who's appearing on every talk show. You know, she's not appearing on other people's albums all the time. You don't see her popping up uh, on stage with the Foo Fighters or whoever. <laughs> you know, she, she is this very enigmatic person for, like, a modern indie celebrity and of course you know we can get into why that's been the case some of the weirdness that she's had to deal with uh with uh you know online fan communities but i find it really refreshing especially in conjunction with this record which really gets mitski back to what she does best which is creating these evocative musical worlds that feel very unique to her and just the uh, aesthetic of this record, uh, you know, making it a lot of it in Nashville and working with country musicians, it, it brought to mind like John Wesley Harding, the great Bob Dylan record that he put out in 67, which he made after he was this very famous rock star in the mid 60s. And then he had the motorcycle accident and he went into retreat and he was a much more mysterious figure and he made this very enigmatic and beautiful record. And I think there's some parallels there with Mitski, uh, where Again, she's this very well-known figure, but she's also she just feels like outside of like what is going on in the culture right now and in a way I feel like maybe that hurt this record a little bit because we're not used to processing musicians like this. Musicians always have to be in our face or it's easy to forget them. But I don't know. I I appreciate and respect her fortitude and like letting the music speak for itself and the music i think can more than do that for me uh it's definitely one of the best albums of the year as far as i'm concerned the interesting thing about this record is that my love mine all mine became like an enormous hit uh on tiktok um and in general so i it's just interesting how that might be uh, when we look back on 10 years like the definitive mitski song um i you know i this was also on my list maybe more towards the back end. Um, it's a record I wish I had spent more time with, but I do find it interesting that like this is living on as like a TikTok song that uh, you know my wife curates for me. Like at the end of the day, it's like, hey, here's some of the TikToks you should see, and like, yeah, that one pops up every other day, like that King Khan song, <laughs> whatever, like whatever that one is. Right. What's your number four? All right, so you know me, gotta gotta do the emo chalk here, so. Maybe it's indicative of like how tough it's been for me to evaluate this genre this year that my favorite emo album of 2023 is only number 
four on the total list. But um, so I'm going to give this one to Awake But Still in Bed, Chaos Takes the Wheel, and I Am a Passenger, which is much shorter than her previous album title. It's a band, but it's mostly the uh, work of one Shannon Taylor. So uh, this record for me is... Uh, the number one albums I've chosen over the past couple of years kind of have a similar sort of, um, you know, framework, which is that they're probably anywhere from, they're close to an hour long. Like I think of, uh, wild pink's last record, uh, I L Y S M. Um, it's way more, it's, it's a real swing for the fences type record. Uh, this one, it's got Jack Shirley producing it as well. Uh, you know, it's got similar to the last one, but um, the first two songs are like eight minutes long a piece. And, um, you know, it's it's been five years in the making. And what I love about this project is that they just love emo so much. <laughs> like the, whole, the all of it, not just like the metalcore stuff, but so, it sounds like Sunny Day Real Estate. It sounds a little like Paramore in places. It sounds a little bit like indie rock. Like essentially, if you like any if you like any wave of emo music, this album will have something for you. And I love how the thematic underpinning of it, which is that, you know, Shannon Taylor put herself in a position to like just do these mind-blowing punishing tour regimens. And because this was her dream, and five years later making a I've won, but at what cost record, you know? Um, and I really, the fact that this one hasn't been, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens when like the punk and emo, like leaning publications put out their year end. But I feel a little like let down by how much this wasn't propped up as like a major record of 2023. Um, maybe it's just the, you know, state of affairs with emo in general, but, um, this one, like I love this album when I think about it and I love it even more when I listen to it. Um, it's a real triumph. It's the one album from this genre that I could call an opus. Um, and, you know, if the vocals from the last album turned you off, they happen a lot less on this time around. So if you haven't checked it out yet, please do so. Like, I can't say enough good things about it. So I have an emo adjacent album coming up on my list, and I'm curious if it landed anywhere for you. It's not my next one. It's the one after, but I'm curious what you think about that record. My number three album is Live and Loose by (laughs) MJ Lenderman in the Wind. Um, This is probably going to be the record I listen to the most from 2023 moving forward. It's already the kind of album that... uh, I can't really imagine any, you know, uh, bonfire or cookout existing without me listening to this record at some point. I cannot wait for the patio to reopen at my house so I can listen to this record outside. Um, you know, I feel like live albums often don't end up on year-end lists. I'm a big fan of live albums, and I would say this one in particular is a real standout. And the way I would justify it is that Neil Young, in 1979, he put out Rust Never Sleeps in June. And then five months later, uh, at the end of the year, he put out Live Rust. And there's a lot of the same songs on Live Rust as there is on Rust Never Sleeps. But Live Rust, I would argue, in many ways represents the superior versions of those songs. So with MJ Lenderman, Both Songs was my album of the year last year. 
Obviously, a lot of boat songs is on this live record, but I would say that those record that those songs sound even better here. They're better realized, and the the songs from the uh, previous album to boat songs, uh, "Ghost of Your Guitar Solo," are completely transformed. Uh, I mean, he recorded that album basically by himself in a bedroom. Here he is on stage with his great backing band, and uh, it just sounds fantastic. There's a great cover of "Long Black Veil" on the record as well. Um, it's a live record. I know some people don't like live records. I feel like you're maybe not a fan of live records. This is a great live record, and I think it absolutely deserves to be counted among the best albums of 2023, which is why I put it at number three. I could have put this at number one. I, If I went by pure, just I know I'm going to listen to this album all the time in the years ahead, I probably would put it at number one, but I'm putting it at number three just to hedge a little bit. Great record, though. Yeah, I love how... Um... You know, when this album like first came out, we're like, this could not be more of a Steve record. And oh my god, yeah. Um, and I and I love that it, it stuck the landing. So um, yeah, I like it a lot as well. It's it's just a really fun record to listen to. So um, as far as my number three goes, uh, I'm gonna go with uh, the clientele. I am not there anymore. So mm. I think that this year saw acts from you know the 2000s. For example, like Yola Tango and Blonde Redhead, like people were ready to uh, revisit uh, some old head stuff. Um, and I think the clientele made the best of that ilk. Um, and I'm also surprised this hasn't come up more on year end list. But I also think it's due to the fact that like Yola Tango, as we talked about in the episode where we went over that record, they reliably put out an album every five years that like regenerates interest. It's like, oh yeah, they're getting back on, they're back on their bullshit. They're, they're great again. Whereas the clientele, you know, I could say that this is their best record since 2005. Uh, Strange Geometry is a record I fucking adore. Uh, but in this, but also they haven't put out a lot of great records in the time since they put out a couple of okay ones and more or less disappeared. Um, what I, this, Similar to Awake But Still In Bed, and this is the only way these two albums have something in common. This is also an immersive 60-minute album. It's not the sort of thing you would expect from them. It's still very much in the mode of wistful, literate uh, indie rock about um, yeah, like about like childhood and about like, uh, their family. Uh, but there's also this, which I love, this element of like late 90s trip-hop to it. Um, which, and also like their spoken word pieces, there's a lot of what one might consider to be quote filler tracks, but I think it makes it a more immersive experience than their previous records, which were just like 11 really excellent songs. Um, this one just keeps giving me new stuff every time I listen to it. Um, and you know, I, I swear it's not just for the old heads. Like you don't have to be 40 years old to love this record probably helps, but this is, I had no expectation of the clientele making a record that really moved me as much as this one did in 2023. Uh, I'm going to be listening to this one uh, a lot next year as well. So this didn't make my list, but I, I am totally with you on uh, doffing the cap to the clientele. I would just say, like, if you love the Always record from last year, you should listen to the clientele if you haven't checked them out. I mean, they are the kind of band where they sounded, you know, like melancholy middle-aged people when they were young, you know? <laughs> so, like, when they're older, it doesn't really matter, you know? It, it, it's the kind of music that you can age in very well. But if you love that kind of wistful, jangly, uh, indie guitar pop type sound, 
they are one of the best at doing that. I do think that Yola Tango, uh, you know, takes up their lane a lot, especially on these lists. I've been seeing that record mm-hmm. appear uh, as sort of the obligatory like veteran indie band entry on year end lists, and that's a really good record too. I didn't make my list, but I, I mean, Yola Tango, you can't go wrong with them. Uh, but yeah, no, I like that choice uh, for your number three. Um, my number two album. Um, this is a record that really snuck up on me. This was like the the tortoise of the year, like the just the slow and steady record. I put it on my mid year list. I liked it then. I didn't necessarily think it would be in the running for like one of my top five albums of the year, but I just kept returning to it and returning to it. And there's something about this record where I just really appreciate how it's just about 10 or 11 fantastic songs. Just really good songwriting, songs I never get sick of hearing. It's the kind of record that I expect that I'm going to return to, that I'll be happy to return to uh, over the years. And it's been in my rotation for a while. It's Infinite Spring by Superviolet. And this is my emo-adjacent record because this is the uh, former singer-songwriter from the Sidekicks, uh, Steve... I can never pronounce his last name. Steve C. I'll say Steve C. Yes. And um, again, I think this is not a record with a narrative. It's not, you know, capturing the zeitgeist. It's just writing beautiful guitar pop songs. I mean, there's songs on here that remind me of like Alex Chilton or like Prime Big Star. I mean, it's really that, I think, level of songwriting. And uh, I don't know. I... Like this is like a record that I would put in the IndieCast Hall of Fame in ten years. It just feels like it's part of that, and I wanted to honor it in the moment. Uh, so yeah, it's my number two album of the year. Yeah, when you mentioned like coming up like Tortoise, I thought you were trying to talk about like some jazz record that involves like uh, Jeff Parker, or John McIntyre, but you mean like Tortoise in the sense of uh, you know the Tortoise in the that, hair. Yes, I like this yeah, record like- a lot too. Um, and I think it's be this like we if we were to expand it the, our list to like ten or fifteen. There's usually like an album that comes in at like number eight, where it's the one that you listen to uh, more than the records that you place higher. Uh, but I, I think we're being more honest with each other on this one. It's like yeah, this is the one I listen to the most, and it's also great. Um, I really think that the next Super Violent album has the potential to be like a real breakthrough. I think a lot of people. Um, it was a slow burn with this one. Um, it was kind of a sleeper pick, but I don't think people are going to be sleeping on the next one. Like if they make an album as good or even better than this one, it'll be, a, it'll be a big deal. Yeah. And I think there's something about them too, almost in that rat boys yes. sense where you just want to cheer for them mm-hmm. because it, it's such a likable band makes such good records, very unassuming in a lot of ways. Um, and it felt a little unsung. I mean, Rat Boys made my bigger list that you can read on Up Rocks. They, I, I mean, I don't know if it was a breakthrough for Rat Boys this year. I feel like I saw a lot more press for them. Rat Boys? Which was yeah. good to see. Yeah, I think that this one, well, uh, I, I I, can think of a few reasons for that. Like, uh, you know, you get you get some new PR people on it, and but that's what it's for. And I think that there's that Chris Walla producing uh, they they just put themselves in a position to be essential in the way their previous albums had it. And, you know, it was like right time, right place. Uh, people were rooting for Rap Boys, and they, they, they absolutely deserve it. Great record, one that probably I'd be talking about if, it, if we were expanding to 10 or 15. 
I blurred that one for Uproc. So uh, it's really good to see both Super Violent and Rap Boys uh, get their due because, you know, the sidekicks were kind of in that Rap Boys position. It's like, how come they're not bigger? Or like, they're your favorite band's favorite band. Uh, so yeah, it, it was really uh, heartening to see it, especially as they're making pretty, um, you know, I mean this like lovingly, like down, like middle of the lane, like indie rock, like nothing fancy, nothing narrative provoking. Yeah, just great songwriting on both those accounts. And I feel like I I just want to shout out uh, Lamo Records too. Yes. Like they uh, put out a lot of records I love this year, along with the Super Ballot record. Uh, they put out uh, Golden Apples record, which I talked about in Recommendation Corner. They put out a really good Slaughter Beach Dog record that I put on one of my sub lists. It didn't make the master list, but it made a sub list uh, on the patio music list uh, mm-hmm. specifically. Uh, so they're definitely like one of my favorite labels of the year, maybe my favorite. All right. So for my number two, this is, I, I may have actually put this one uh, number one in my mid year or at very least on my Uproxx uh, list, but it's um, uh, Billy Woods and Kenny Siegel's album, Ra- uh, Maps. I was about to say Raps. Uh, there's Raps on this album. There are for sure. But um, this is, the, uh, Billy Woods is an artist I've really uh, got into, you know, over the past five or so years. He's been around for much longer. But it was interesting because last year I felt like I was kind of getting a little exhausted uh, of him in the way that sometimes I do with, certain rappers that I get into like, uh, like very deeply. And then I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, and then you can probably make up the lyrics yourself. Like it happened with Cameron, it happened with Gucci, man, it happened with rock Marciano to a degree, but this record really threads the needle. Like rap is obviously like a difficult genre for me to engage with as a 43 year old man who primarily listens to indie rock. And on the one hand, you have what I like to call like dad rap, which is like Run the Jewels, Pusha T, Freddie Gibbs, Killer Mike, like stuff that was big in the early 2000s. And, um, you know, it's like you know what to expect. And on the other hand, you have newer stuff like, you know, the Earl Sweatshirt extended universe, like him, Mike, Wiki, I guess, who, you know, don't put drums on their record and just like really dense and kind of like slow talking, slurry music. Um this one hits right in the middle uh, for me uh, in the sense that like the beats are interesting, but they're not aggressive. And the lyrics are like very dense, but also very funny, but they're not like laid back and kind of stoned. And this record just makes his Billy Woods just a, like 10% more accessible uh, than previous records. It's got like the future islands guy doing a hook. Um, and it's largely an album about like what it's like to be a mid-level touring rap act in in that same in the sense of what it's like in 2023 to like do it take a 300 uber to a show or just be stuck in your hotel doing facetime um and it's very lived in it's like very new york city but like not like provincial in the way that i find a lot of that stuff off-putting and um this and it's a rap album i can just throw on at any time kind of similar to like say like mad villainy or um you know, like I, I, I'm trying to think of comparative points, but they all seem to be MF Doom records. So this is probably the album I listen to the most in the gym, in the car. It's very versatile and it's very, uh, it just gives me something new every time I hear it. It's another, it's sort of similar to Rat Boys and uh, Super Violent that this is someone who has been kind of underrated for quite a long time, but their moment came and they did not uh, fail when, you know, the spotlight was on them. Yeah, I feel like this is the rap record I'm seeing the most. 
on year-end list. And I, it doesn't seem like there was a great commercially successful rap record this year, or at least like a critically <laughs> acclaimed uh, one. So it, it seems like that opened a lane for this album. So uh, that's good to see. My number one album of the year, uh, I feel like this is a little bit chalky, but whatever, it's what I really feel. It's Rat Saw God by Wednesday. And the thing about this record, and I wrote about this in my blurb in my column, that uh, I'm going to make a Stephen Van Zant reference here. <laughs> uh, he hosts this show called Underground Garage, and I once read an interview with him where he talked about how on his show, and his rule for what to play is that it either had to be an influence for the Ramones, or it had to be influenced by the Ramones. So before them or after them, but the Ramones are at the center of the musical world for that show. And I feel like for me right now, the music that I'm most drawn to, Wednesday is that band. If we're talking about this sort of like heavy riffing, story-oriented, kind of, but not really alt-country type thing that you're seeing from like a lot of bands, you know, from North Carolina as well as elsewhere. I feel like there's like quite a few records like that on my list. And I don't know if Wednesday, if it's accurate to say that they're spearheading it, but it feels like they are. It feels like they're the figurehead of that. So even if this wasn't my favorite record of the year, which it is, but if it wasn't, it would be the most important for me because it does feel like it's part of this thing that feels like a movement in this decade that I'm personally really into. So that's why it's my number one record, Rat Saw God by Wednesday. Yeah, I think that... That the, this is going to be one of the records that when we look back on 2023 is a real uh, like time capsule. It, it you know it's another example of a band who you know, things were building for Wednesday. Like you could just kind of tell it's like oh it's their moment between the previous record getting that slow burn appreciation and MJ Lenderman's solo album. It's it was their time, and you know when that time came they you know, stepped up in every way possible. Uh, you know, this is a record that I'll probably appreciate more in 2024 once the kind of hype and narrative dies down and I can have my own experience with it. But yeah, I, I, anyone who puts this at number one, it's deserved. So um, as far as mine goes now, I, I think you joked about this when it first came out as being an album designed in a lab for my particular taste, maybe in the same way that the MJ Lenderman or the uh, Wednesday album was for you. Um, I tried to overthink this, but it, when, the album I listened to the most in 2023 and the album I enjoyed the most every time I listened to it comes from uh, Paranormal After the Magic. Uh, this is This came out pretty early in the year, so it might be kind of an end-to-end -end number one. For me, but um, you know, this their previous album in twenty twenty one, to see the next part of the dream. It was like if M eight early M eighty three was like an emo band, and of course this was borne out by the fact they signed to Top Shelf, which had a fucking phenomenal year with albums that weren't emo. Um, and on this, and I would wonder like, well, what's going to happen if they actually get production values or people start paying attention? Or, um, but this album just. Uh, explodes what I thought was possible for them. Like I did not expect them to uh, follow up their previous album with a one that was even better. Uh, and one that, you know, maintains that homemade feel, but like it's not lo-fi at all. And, you know, when I listen to this album, what I kind of think about is like when you're a kid on Halloween and like you're trick or treating 
And like, this is what it would be like to pull constantly Snickers and a hundred grand. Like you never get that like <laughs> lame ass three musketeers or Milky way. Those you're, it's just always surprised. This is an album like where the choruses are great, but there's more about like the bridges and the transitions and the codas and every single second is just such a joy to listen to. It provides something surprising. It's just like all the, things I think are awesome about shoegaze, about um, electronic music, about emo, about 90s alt rock, and puts it together in a way that's kind of similar in approach to the DJ uh, Sabrina the Teenage Witch or, you know, Avalanches or like any sort of mashup. But it just does so with um, all of my favorite indie rock music from the past like 20 years, including like, you know, the Knot Twist or... Um, like caribou or anything basically it's like my entire recommendation quarter yeah combined to one album (laughs) Uh, yeah i love it i love it this is like if you're gonna make the ultimate ian cohen core record (laughs) ian cohen better put it at number one on his list so i'm glad glad you delivered on that uh yeah that's really that's really good record too i like that a lot it didn't end up on my master list but uh i really enjoyed it just a stacked year man like lots of Fun albums to check out. Uh, and hopefully you have discovered some of those through this show or through the writing Ian and I do. Uh, that makes us feel good when people follow our recommendations and find good music. Uh, so this is the penultimate show of the year. IndieCasties next week, and then we're done for 2023. So I think we're just building up ahead of steam here, Ian. Yes. We're going out with a bang. It's going to be great. We'll be back one more time this year with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. (laughs) 